Welcome to the Pause and Effect podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kyra, and in this podcast, we explore the topic of fear-free pets. So each month, we'll be interviewing different experts and discussing pet-related topics um, to help you, our listener. And today, I'm really excited for you to sit back, relax, and let's dive into the subject of fear-free pets. And I'm very excited to welcome our guest speaker, Daniel Stewart, KZN's animal behaviorist. Welcome, Daniel. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, thank you. Yeah. So we are very aware, um, as a vet uh, I'm, and as a pet owner, I'm very aware of the, the requirement for you as an animal behaviorist. Um, a survey conducted by the South African Veterinary Association in 2019 found that 70% of pet owners in South Africa reported their pets to have behavioral issues. Mm. So it's clearly a common problem. Um, and one I'm excited to discuss with you yeah, today. Yeah. No, it certainly is a problem, and it's and we and I see it all the time. I mean, of course, that's my business, but it's but I do see it. it's the same as your business. You know, people come and bring pets into you for certain reasons. Unfortunately, you run an emergency clinic where you know it's it's an emergency; they have to be seen immediately. But there's a lot of your your normal day to days like vaccinations and things like that. But for ours, for from a behaviourist point of view, it's really sad to actually see these pets that are not functioning properly within a home environment. And I think that that's why it's so important that we actually have fear free and try and promote it all the time. Where it's it is, as I say, it's it's from a from a pet's perspective as well as the owner's perspective. And I think it's a lot of time people get overwhelmed with the, the potential problems that pets cause. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, it's a great subject and I'm, I'm really happy to be here. Thank, oh, thank you. Thank you. So let's start at the very beginning. Mm. Um, let's talk about how to identify whether your pet or our patients are fearful. So what are the common signs of fear? You know, the, the most common signs that I find also work in veterinary practices as well is that dogs, first, the moment that door opens from, the, from that vet practice, the dog steps back. And what does the owner do? They tighten the lead and they drag the dog in. Okay. You know, and it's, it, that's immediately the first sign that I would see. Um, if the dog does walk in, um, it often goes along and sits in your waiting room and it goes and it hides under the chair. So there's another sign, very clear sign that's mm. there. Um, <clears throat> another one, a receptionist might go, oh, shame, let's give it a treat, which is great. And I think I, I always try and recommend it. Mm. But if the dog doesn't take the treat, there is a clear sign of, of, of stress of some sort. So it's little things like that that people often just pass by. They go, oh, well, it's not hungry. Or it's a, no, hold on a minute. There's a problem here. Mm -hmm. And then we need to then start looking at it, and that's when the vets come out, and then they see it and put more pressure on the dog, and maybe the dog will then take it to a further level of um, a snap or something like that, mm -hmm. which is very negative for everybody then. So we need to rectify the problem as it walks through the front door. Of course, I agree. So other typical signs for, for pet owners, what are the kind of signs they'll display within a household? The household is, you know, you'll find that the dogs will have a preferred place to go, which is excluded from the family. Okay. You know, that's a common thing. So isolation. Isolation. Um, it's not necessarily an open bed. It's like behind the couch, mm -hmm. that kind of isolation. Mm -hmm. um, you will, if there's a slight bang in the house, the dog will cringe. And it's not always the fact people think, oh, it's head shy, it's hand shy. And it's, hold on a minute, the dog has been fearful from a sound perspective, not from 
a owner being abusive. It's simply what the dog and the mood state that the dog is actually in at that moment. And then there's those correlations of what could happen. And the mm. dog's starting to overthink things. Mm. Okay, so, so perhaps we can explore some more of the sort of behavioral signs as we talk about what are the most common things that our pets are fearful of. Obviously, you've mentioned going to the vet, which um, I think uh, we all understand maybe mm. quite a stressful and fearful situation for pet owners as well as their pets. Um, but what other situations do you find pets fearful? I mean, are we talking sort of severe thunderstorms or? Yeah, no, so sound, sound is a big thing. Okay. And, and, and it doesn't matter what sound. It could be, could be the, the, the rubbish truck, you know, because wow. those hydraulic brakes working and things like it. I've noticed mm. that a couple of times when the dogs cringe when, when that happens. Mm. Um, <clears throat> backfiring of cars, um, thunderstorms, um, and even to the point where we've had it before where there was a thunderstorm and the dog was all calm, but then a branch has fallen out of a tree. You know, it's something silly, silly things, but it's just not common. And the dog has now become fearful and it's an association of the thunderstorm where in actual fact, mm -hmm. it had nothing to do with the thunderstorm. Okay. You know, um, it could even... So previous it, trauma. Previous trauma, exactly. Okay. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of different things that we can actually see where is the dog fearful? Um, a lot of people come along and say, please, can you help me get the dog walking on a lead better? And because the dog puts the lead on and runs. Now, okay. that's just wanting to go for a walk. Okay. But other owners phone me up and go, my dog won't go for a walk with me. Wow. Well, you know, why? Let's have a look at the reasons why it won't. And once we start understanding the reasons why it won't do something or why it does do something, then we can actually break it all down and start working on that specific point in the dog's behavior and and trying to change that or modify that behavior that's great and so what are the sort of things that pet owners what can they do to make their pets feel less fearful what are the suggestions you you feel are going to be most effective in situations <clears throat> like that you know I find um, and we'll, we'll get onto potentially medications and, and a lot of training, things like that. But I find the, the crux of everything is that a lot of the owners, they try and if the dog reacts to something, they immediately go in and trying to pacify the dog. Mm -hmm. So they go, it's okay, my darling, it's okay. And they try, and then the owner starts getting a little bit anxious. And I can see it within the owner. Mm -hmm. It's okay, it's okay, it's okay. And they start over-vocalizing. That actually is rewarding the dog for in that mood state, to wow. stay in that mood state. And we find that if you just go, well, is it being seriously detrimental to the dog? No, then leave the dog alone. And the dog then works it out itself that, oh, that sound or that thing actually is not dangerous, mm. nothing to be fearful of. Mm. And we get over it. So the dog actually comes out of it by itself, as opposed to us going, it's okay, and patting it. So it's and reinforcing it's that It's reinforcing that behavior. Okay. And it's, there's, I know the owners want to help mm -hmm. and think they're helping, but sometimes they're actually doing a bit of damage. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to blame the owners, not at all. You know, I think the owners, it's great that the owners are caring and loving. Mm -hmm. But I think it's, I think if they are, just take a little short step back and go, what are we doing? How am I impacting them? How behavior? are they impacting it? Okay. Correct. So let's, let's come up with a scenario. Um, we know we have a pet. Um, for example, we've had um, a client who's asked us recently, how do I handle the dogs when they're really, really fearful of a thunderstorm? 
So let's use the example of a thunderstorm. What are the kind of things that you can put in place either ahead of time or at the time of a thunderstorm in order to try and help manage that fearful response? Well, what is really interesting is that even with, from my own personal experience is that I've always uh, trained my dogs from puppies to every time there was a thunderstorm, I'd go and play ball with them. So they would, be, they would, they would associate the thunderstorm as a, as a playtime. <laughs> and it was like great fun, you know? It's, mm -hmm. it's, that's conditioning in the dog that actually everything's fine. Okay. Um, but um, it was a neighbor's dog that kept on coming over to my place in a thunderstorm because it was fearful. And now my dog started to be fearful as well because it started picking up on that dog's behavior. All right? So it was, it was a little difficult from that side. So it's very easy to manipulate a behavior, negatively or positively. Okay? However, if you are very um, observant of your dogs or your animals, in fact, cats and dogs, you know, we mustn't must forget about the cats, Absolutely. Um, is that they will start picking up that pressure change in the atmosphere believe it or not. Mm. You know, people go, really? I don't feel it. Uh, but the, the animal does. And it'll start telling you that there's a storm on the way. So now we can start predicting it. We can start preempting that potential fear and start resolving it before it becomes a fear. Okay. Okay. So, you know, we've got a lot of medication on, on over-the-counter medication that mm -hmm. really does help with, with thunderphobic dogs. Yeah. Um, with my cat in particular, she comes in and she sits in the middle of the lounge mm. and I then go along and give her a little bit of valerian root and she's just so chilled. And you can have whatever kind of storm you want, mm. but she knows that's her safe spot because she's got her, her drug. So you, you know? talk about a safe spot. So mm. preempt the, the behavior, use medication if you need Only it. Only if you need it. But yeah. the safe spot, is that a big feature of it is um, and I find that even to the point where some dogs in fact I actually built a cupboard for a dog once because that's where the dog wanted to be so let's make it more comfortable for it mm. and it, had, it was start, it was a safe zone doesn't matter what it was it was a very very fearful dog mm. so anybody even coming home it would run to the cupboard mm. so we built basically a kennel in the cupboard for the dog's safe place mm. and that comes along also crate training you, know, you can bring that into it, but it needs to be, normally it needs to be quite dark, um, a little bit of um, noise-reducing kind of environment, so a nice thick blanket or something like that over the crate, and that kind of stuff really, really helps because mm -hmm. nothing ever negative happens in that, in that space. Okay. So, it's so they've got a good association with the space. Good, 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 yes, correct. Okay. Yeah. And things like, you know, would you advise turning on fans or playing music or turning the TV on or, you know, do those sort of things help? It, they do help. And, you know, what I don't think we do this enough, even in puppy training, is that, you know, you can actually get CDs. And I'm talking now going back to their developmental stages of, okay. of a couple of weeks old, is that you could actually even get a, a CD that sounds thunderstorms and things like oh, that wow. and then every time the dog just doesn't interact with the speaker we we can actually give it a reward so in other words it's just starting to ignore that now that's preempting for the rest of its life and wow. associating it especially when you know we do certainly have your storm seasons mm. um, and if you have a puppy that out of storm season um, mm. rather put it in there with through through audios of storms mm. but now we've got an adult dog that is thunderphobic um, you know, play music, absolutely. That it just dampens the, the thunder. Mm. Close the curtains, it just stops that extra sound coming through the windows. 
Um, it's those little things that can actually really help. Um, what we also sometimes advise, depending on how severe the, the fear is, um, is support the dog. It's going to, if it goes into a panic, it's going to do damage to itself. Mm. So rather support a very, very fearful dog mm. when needed. But if it's not that fearful and it's going to become more fearful, then rather allow the dog to work itself. So it's a bit of a balance that it's you must play um, with the dog and how, and how deep it goes. And tell me, what is the impact of people getting uptight at the time? Because I think, you know, you've experienced a thunderstorm with your dog before or cat and you start to feel tense. So, you, you know, we, we relate um, a lot of how we feel and we, we actually impose a lot of those behaviours onto our animals by tensing up. You used the example of, you know, grabbing the lead earlier yeah. and being tense and, um, and actually inducing fear in those moments. How much about our behaviour actually impacts I, I believe it impacts the dogs a lot, a heck of a lot. Okay. Um, and why I say like the environment in which the dogs live in um, can also depict the behavior that the dogs have. So if we come along and thunderstorm, let's stay to that scenario, is that thunderstorm starting to go off and you know that your dog is going to be maybe running around, going a bit crazy, and you come along and now you start screaming and shouting at the dog just to try and calm it down because mm. the damn thing is there. It does not help at all. Mm. Rather support the dog. Rather, you know find that safe zone for it. Rather go along and put it in there so we cannot do damage to itself by being so fearful that it runs. And that's where you know, your, your fight and flight response comes in. Um, and the, you know, in the brain, the amygdala of the brain responds so, so fast. Mm -hmm. And the dog will react to what it thinks to a point, but then it comes into danger. Mm -hmm. So rather prevent that from happening. And the dog might still be fearful in the safe zone, but at least it can't do damage to itself, which I think is really, That's really important. The critical thing. Mm. So uh, let's talk breeds. Mm. Wow. <laughs> yes, it had to come up. Selecting the right breed for a household or selecting a breed that you can cope with in terms of the potential behavioral issues. Um, obviously some breeds are, are more prone to stress or more likely to, to be anxious. How do, you, how do you make sure that you're selecting a pet that is going to suit, like you say, either your ability to, to deal with those behaviors or your general lifestyle um, so that you're not actually taking on something that's going to induce anxiety both for your family members, yourself, and, and the and pet? The pet. Um, I mean, there are a lot of breeds out there. Mm -hmm. And now there are even more breeds because they're mixing the breeds um, purposely. You know, and registering them. So you've got labby poodles and doodles and all that mm. kind of stuff, which is, I mean, they're really nice dogs. Um, but knowing the char characteristics of the individual breed, I think you need to do your research before you just go out and go, oh, it's cute, let's mm. buy one. You know? Um, <clears throat> and also, of course, getting from reputable breeders. I think that's a big problem because then the genetics are actually right, you know, because they, they're selectively breeding for a home environment as opposed to a work environment, you know? I think that's one step that we must very seldom really focus on. So do you advise people go and look at the parents of the... Of if the they're getting a, 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 a purebred dog, okay, yeah. or a registered dog, then definitely looking at the parents. Um, I would really would not recommend going along buying something over Facebook or internet, you know? Absolutely. Rather go along into the actual 
to the actual parents. Mm. Um, but if you go into a shelter, you know, there are a lot of good dogs in shelters. Oh, uh, absolutely. Dogs. So, you know, rather go along and take something that actually needs a home as opposed to creating something, uh, you know, something else. Um, but again, even those dogs in, in shelters, we need to really look at it. And I think if it's a good shelter, mm. you can go and spend some time with it. Understand the behavior, understand the personality of the dog. You know, so from the breed perspective as well as... as yes, as well as the previous. individual. Okay. You know, we come along and, and often I see, oh, well, I've got two young boys, um, therefore I can get a little active dog. Mm. And the dog is actually beyond active. Mm. You know, um, you might come along and get a, a Belgian Malinois, you know, and now these dogs are intense. If you don't put enough energy into them, they become very, very intense and they mm. think a lot for themselves. Mm. Now it becomes a potential problem because, you know, on those sports days where you want to go along and play soccer with your kids, the dog goes, no, 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 I want to do something else. Mm -hmm. And it's those kind of things that I find becoming a problem from a behavioral point of view because a lot of destruction comes along. Um, now the dog's digging up your garden, mm -hmm. you know, eating your plant pots, um, whatever, whatever, whatever. Mm -hmm. And then those dogs end up in shelter because they can't cope, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and I think one must be very, very careful of looking at those traits and those personalities of the individual dog that you want to try and get. Mm. Does that answer you? Yes, it does. And I think that's that's very clear. So from from what I'm understanding is, you know, obviously we're trying to encourage pets to be rehomed, um, mm. but they may be in those shelters or they may have been um, given up because of their behavioural issues. Mm. So um, sort of understanding the breed is really critical, but then also going along meeting them, taking the time to make those decisions, considering it from a perspective of how much time do I have to dedicate and commit to this, this animal. Correct. Um, <clears throat> seeing any potential issues and whether you can financially or emotionally deal with them. Um, and then working with those, those, yeah. those issues early on. We're going to take a break. Thank you for your attention. This podcast is sponsored by UltraPet. So I'm going to take a moment to read you their manifesto. For more than 25 years, we at UltraPet have made it our mission to take the ifs, buts, and maybes out of premium pet food. Because when we say scientifically formulated, it's a fact. When we say value, the numbers speak for themselves. When we say more meat, the proof is in the pudding. And when we say we care, our accident cover delivers. What sets us apart is not one thing, it's all the things combined. Because we understand that when it comes to your pets, you want certainty on all fronts. You want absolutes, the absolute best, given your means. Premium quality, but without the exorbitant cost. So, rest assured that any claim we make, we stand by. It's our commitment to your pets, our promise to you. And to prove it, we're willing to put our money where our mouth is. And I find that, you know, if, especially if people are prefer to get a puppy, mm -hmm. um, let's resolve the problem as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. Don't come along and go, well, let's wait until he's a year old. Let's wait until uh, maybe he'll grow out of it at two years old. Let's, and then all of a sudden, it's, it's an entrenched behavior. Mm -hmm. And now we've got a huge problem on our hands. And a lot of the times, those dogs go into shelters because the owners have thought that they've tried everything. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's why, you know, there are behaviourists, there are people that can help those owners um, as long as they are prepared to 
open up their, their minds and thinking, okay, fine, well, there are people out there to help. So I'm going to give you um, a scenario. Let's say we have, we've been sensible, we've selected a, a breed that's going to be suitable for our family environment. Um, perhaps we've decided to go down the route of a pure bread and I've checked out the, the breeder and the history and I've sought advice and made sure that they're reputable and I am going to get this puppy. So how do I start this puppy's life in the best way to ensure that I am not inducing any behavioral issues, particularly fear-based hmm. issues? How do I go? So, what, what, so, what do so, I need to do? What so do I need for, to know? First of all, I think it's, it's really important to understand the developmental stages of the dog. You know, by the time we get the dog as, as a new owner, the dog is six, eight weeks old, right? So it's already gone through or going near the end of its socializing period. Now, it starts socializing with its litter mates, of course, and the mother and things like that. Mm -hmm. But very few people, number one. If the dog gets to, let's say, week 14, right, and it hasn't seen many people, it might have only seen the breeder, right, it is fearful of people. Gosh. All right, so early in life. But we might get the dog at, let's say, eight weeks old. Mm -hmm. So I would always recommend, of course, proper socializing. That's number one, critical. Okay. And it's not just socializing with other dogs. It is socializing with everything. So the cat, the people, old people, young people, you know, sounds of cars. The vacuum cleaner. Vacuum cleaners, exactly. <laughs> you know, even, even taking out the rubbish bag, you know, and that big black thing all of a sudden there's making noise and rustling. Anything you can possibly um, get the dog to be inquisitive about and be, you know, exploratory as such. So okay. it's early on in their development. Early on in their development. Because once starts around about week five, okay, although we're in a, still in that critical socializing period, but around about week five, they start creating hazard avoidance. That's really young. That's even before we get it. Mm. But then what happens? We bring it to you guys, mm. the vets. Mm. Now all of a sudden the dog's in the middle of, or the, right in the beginning of that hazard avoidance period, mm. and now you guys come along and jab it with needles. <laughs> like, come on, yeah. you know what I mean? Like the dog must be fearful. That's why a lot of the dogs are fearful of vets. Yeah. So if we can create a really positive experience at the vets, mm. at the playgrounds, at wherever it is, mm. you know what I mean? Then the dog starts on a good footing, mm. and we can then slowly carry on. I've had a number of people that come along and go, no, no, my dog's sociable because I've got three other dogs at home. You know, there's, there's a behaviorist in America who comes along and if your dog has not seen over 100 dogs before six months of age, it's not social. Wow. I'm like, who on earth can actually do that amount of dogs? Mm. But it's not the fact that you have to. It's the fact that you've got a goal. Let's put the dog in front of as many things as possible. Mm. And I think that's what's really, really critical in the beginning of those puppies' lives with us in the new family. So you, you talk about dogs being fearful of coming to the vet. So would you advise, obviously, they've got to come in for vaccinations. How do you get them familiar with even the journey to the vet? You know, how do you, how do you make it a positive? You know I feel very strongly about yeah. fear-free pets, and yeah. I have obviously set up our practice to try and take into consideration all aspects from... Yeah. Um, separate cats and dog waiting rooms to pumping pheromones into the cat area. You know, there's lots of things, features, separate cat scales, and um, we cover the, the cages when people wait with their cats so that they, they feel calm. Um, what, what are the sort of things that owners can do to, to make that experience a positive experience right from the start or to improve the previous experience? So, so visit. 
so <laughs> let's let's start as I say it's from a young puppy yeah. first of all enroll in a puppy class okay and most puppy classes are actually at vets yes so it's really really nice that they go along and play do with their friends good. okay do something good mm. and also can quickly go in there maybe get weighed nothing negative to the dog you know the reception's got a nice little treat for the dog or whatever mm. the story is and it's really really good interaction with with a number of different people mm. and the different smells and things like that so that's number one. Second is that your trip in and out, um, a lot of people come along and, and, and feed the dogs at the wrong time. When I say at the wrong time, is that they put a lot of food, or feed the dog, then put in the car because, oh, it's an either an early, early um, event or a late afternoon event. Okay. So now the dog has got a full stomach and vomits because, you know, maybe going over speed bumps, around corners, mm -hmm. through potholes. And... <clears throat> Now the dog vomits. Now the dog has an association with the car being feeling sick. Okay. Okay. So rather be very conscious about is the dog's stomach settled? Number one. Okay. So that's the trip wherever you're going. Doesn't matter to the dog park, to the vet, to your neighbor. And would you encourage okay. that? Put your dog in the car, absolutely. take them to the shops. You know, absolutely. Take even them to, to the, the point where some dogs, I even recommend that you feed the dog in the car. Oh. You know, so the dog, the car's not started. The, car, the dog literally is just there eating, get out. Okay. Then you start the car, put the dog in, dog eats, get out. Switch the car oh, off, wow. of course. Okay. Um, then you would come along and take the dog up and down the driveway, if it is that fearful mm. um, or, or, or car sick. Some dogs, they're so small because they're small puppies, they can't see out the window. Mm. So if you could raise the puppy in the car, that can see out the window. That also helps the dog. Oh, that's great okay? advice. So it's, it's, it's little things that we can do. Then, you know, the times when you driving down and you're gonna go, hold on a minute, I'm going past the vet. Well, I'm gonna put the dog in the car, take it into the vet, literally, walk in, hi, how are you doing, walk out. Mm. You don't have to make an appointment to say hello to the receptionist. All the vets are quite happy. I know mm. your vet no, practices. You know, so I really, really recommend that you actually take your dog to the vet just to get a treat. And it will make a world of difference to that dog for the rest of its life. Mm. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So the situation now is your dog's sick and mm. they've got to come in and there's nothing we can do about it. <laughs> if you know you have a fearful dog, what do you advise? Do you think it's worth informing yeah, I think ahead of time? Can you, I and mean, we like to know, I know that you know, if you contact our practice and you say, you know, I'm coming in just to let you know that our dog's a bit scared, we make every effort to try and ensure mm. that we don't mm. make the situation any worse. But, you know, what are the sort of things that you can do in, in terms of trying to make that experience? I think from, from both veterinary practices and ownership point of view is that, yes, open that communications up, number one. Okay. And take the owner's words seriously. Mm. And, and, I, and I think it's sometimes, don't worry, we've got the right handlers. Actually, sometimes it's not actually, the, there might be very good handlers, but the dog just won't cope with it. Mm. So look and see, first of all, breed-specific behaviors, okay, number one, um, and what have we got to handle the dog. Um, also, I'm gonna suggest also telling the owner not to bring the dog in. Arrive at the clinic, leave the dog in the car, if we've got somebody, or with the window open, come in and go, right, I'm here. Okay. So instead of dragging the dog through the reception, and maybe you've had two walk-ins, it's out of your control. Mm. So now you've got two other people with two other animals in the, cl in the clinic. Now this dog walks in and goes, I can't cope. And I'm still feeling ill. Or it might be an emergency. Rather leave your dog in there, go in, assess the situation. Again, tell the receptionist and the vet that 
I have this dog, these are the potential problems. We've had problems in the, few, in the past, so we don't want to reoccur. So you're minimizing the amount of time that the dogs are in Correct. that fearful Correct. Absolutely. situation. You know, I know I've done this at your practice a number of times where I've taken dogs in, and because we know the behavior of the dogs, is that I would walk the dog in just through the door and then walk it out immediately. Mm. Oh wow, nothing really negative happened. Oh my word. And walk it around your car park. Mm. You, you know what I mean? And then do it a little bit further in little bit further in every single time we just go in and out in and out in and out and the dog just goes we're going in there again sure and then the vet sees it as opposed to dragging it in dogs like bullying itself into into a frenzy mm. um and i found just walking it exercise just movement actually reduces stress mm. so if you just keep that dog moving around a little bit it really helps that dog mm. and if the vet understands it when they might say, we are ready for you, and you're gonna, you might be able to say, the owner being, give me more two more minutes. I think it's communication, and I think it's really vital that we have that communication with everybody within the practice and the owner. Mm, absolutely, totally agree. So other scenarios that you, you find you're approached to, to advise on. So what do people mistake as different behavior to fear? Um, they come across aggression, you know, and just getting back to your, your clinic. Biting. Biting. You know, coming back to your clinic scenario is that if you've got a dog which, which is clearly tense, you know, we don't want anybody being damaged by it. Mm. And we also don't want to put the dog through more pressure by mishandling. You know, when I say mishandling, are we purposely going to go along and, you know, grab the dog and wrestle it to the ground? Mm. No, not at all. We don't want to do that. No. But so let's prevent it from happening. And in those cases, Let's use a muzzle. Mm. I know not every dog is trained to handle a muzzle, but if the vet's going to handle it for, what, a couple of minutes, let's rather be, make sure everybody is safe, mm. including the dog, by wearing a muzzle. Mm. I've got no issues with that, mm. as long as it's well-fitted, you know, the correct size muzzle, the correct type of muzzle, mm. things like that, where, you know, if we are doing it properly, we can even explain to the owner on how to put it on properly mm. so the vet or the assistant doesn't even come in contact with the dog until it is safe. Mm. Um, and explain to the owner why we're using it. Absolutely. It's not the fact that just muzzle your damn dog. Yeah, I think a lot of a lot of our clients get very upset or very offended if we want to use a muzzle. Mm. Um, probably not understanding that we're actually able to control them a bit better and more gently Correct. if they are muzzled. Correct. Um, and obviously within our profession we really rely on the use of our hands so to be bitten is a is a is a big no, no, issue it's a huge problem. um but i think you know obviously perception that as soon as they're muzzled we're we're going to be handling them yeah. with in fact it happens to be less restrained because they're muzzled correct um, and i think a muzzle is and it's uh, and it's an important aspect that tool. we need to be able to communicate to the owner mm. that actually muzzles are not a bad thing mm. you know for individual dogs do you have to do every dog no not at all. But some dogs, because the owner has told you that it's a potential biter, mm. and then also the, the next thing is to say, taking the owner's advice of saying, right, well, if that's the case, let's rather muzzle it. So in other words, we can be calmer mm. around the dog. We don't have to be that um, stressed about it. And, um, and muzzles the work. Situation, yeah. Absolutely work. They work very well. Yeah. yeah. So how often do you see... Um, fear biting i mean obviously it's a, it's a major issue and we've we've been in that terrible situation of having to make the call on euthanizing a pet in the event of them biting a child or 
um, a, a like, continuous um, situation of in, inter-house fighting between dogs. Mm. So it's a big issue, yeah. um, particularly in the time when we're dealing with rabies and um, a major outbreak of rabies in South Africa. Mm. Um, you know, fear biting is a, is a, a problem. Um, how do we teach our kids, for example, to, well, to avoid these sort of situations? Because I know we talk training from a young age in, in puppies. Um, as a mother, I obviously, it's my responsibility to try and teach my child how to handle and, and manage situations to not make our pets fearful. Hmm. And I come across it more frequently than I'd like to admit. They just, um, just don't understand. So what, what, how do we teach our kids? What are well, the main... I think, I think a lot of the time, I mean, I'm, I'm quite passionate about bite prevention mm. because the dogs always get the bad rap, you know, but our behaviour or the child's behaviour or in fact doesn't matter whose behaviour it is, is that um, sometimes spurs on that, that fight response mm. um, simply out of fear. Um, again, it goes back to breed specifics. You mm. know, we could come along and, and, and get dogs that are... Um, it, they want to chase, you know, kids who are running off the ball, that kind of mm. stuff. A lot of the time I will find that it'll be accidents because the kid might grab the ball at the same time as the dog does. And that, okay. those kind of things we can accept. Mm. And we're going to go, well, you know, be more conscious about where the dog is. Mm. Um, but you also do get those times where, you know, you look at a, a child's arm and you're going to go, wow, was that a dog bite? And although it might have just been a bruise mm. to start with, What's the next one going to be? You know, has the dog got any bite inhibition? Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't, then we need to really and truthfully work on that. But what caused that dog to actually open its mouth onto a child's arm? Was it excitement? Okay. Or was it threat? And I'm saying threat. You know, a, a kid might come along and go scream and shout and push its arms out to the dog because the, dog, uh, the child is fearful. Mm -hmm. You know, and that also sometimes causes causes the issues so so, so some of the signs you see I mean we've spoken about this before you're like there are subtle signs that you can perhaps teach them to recognize that that dog is fearful whether it's you know tail tuck or yawning it, it, or absolutely what, what so so a lot of the time immediately it is the fear side of it's tail tucking okay okay head lowering okay. all right so flattened ears okay um licking its lips a lot mm. it's uh, although it's acceptance but it's also indicating no 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 you know and it's trying to it's trying to just tell you that just leave me alone yeah okay um then on the other side when you're looking at aggression you know dogs are maybe pushing their chest out you know okay. strength stra uh, um, uh, straightening their, their front legs oh, wow. um the tail goes stiffer you know the tail stops moving all those kind of things ears pricked mouth closed Believe it or not, there's a lot of different things we can read on dogs' bodies. We're going to go, oh, why is that happening? Mm. And there's just too much focus when the dog's mouth is closed. Mm. Dog's mouth's open, tongue normally, breathing normally, normally okay. But at the moment the dog closes its mouth and tenses up, hold on, rather just step back for your own safety. What's happening? Then assess why it's like it. It might not nothing be to do with you mm. or the child, but it might be something behind you. Oh, well, it's only, it's only that. It's only the monkey in the, in the, in the tree. Mm. Well, that's okay. I can relax a bit. Okay. But I find that a lot of times when you have dog and dog fights, um, it is a lot of resource guarding over the owner or over food or over a ball or something like that. Okay. And now you've got dog and dog. And that's what you guys see a lot. You, yeah. know, you see the patient. You see the actual... Mm. You never see the human patient. Mm. They go to the human hospital, yeah. you know. 
Um, <clears throat> but that is one thing that we see quite often, as I say, these fighting amongst other dogs. Um, and then when it comes down to owners being bitten, a lot of the time it's because the owners are trying to get into in the middle of that fight. Sure. So now the owner has to go to hospital, the two dogs go to the hospital, mm. and everything could have been prevented by just taking the ball away. Or reading the cues. Reading the cues, mm. exactly. Listening to your dogs. Because the dogs, you know, often I find um, a, a lot of people have said to me, the dog showed nothing, did not tell me anything, it just happened. I disagree. The dog will always tell you something, but you just not observe it. And and it's the dog's under the chair, dropped his ears. Maybe you didn't see it, but the dog still is telling you something. And it's just progressing to go, I've tried to warn, I've tried to do this, I've maybe growled, I've done this, but I'm ignoring it. And all of a sudden the dog goes, actually enough's enough, I'm gonna go out there, I'm now having to go to the next level, and it might be a nip. Mm. Oh, now the, now the dog's aggressive, it never even just tells me, it just wants to bite me. Mm. No. And it, I suppose it results in a lot of pets being given up. Absolutely. And then, and then, but we could resolve that problem, mm. as opposed to putting it on the well, into, the, onto the burden of welfare, mm. and the dog has to be euthanized just because it's got a, a it, it's, you know, yes, it's bitten somebody, yes. Mm. But if it was your dog, let's rather resolve the problem, and we can, I'm not gonna say every single dog we can resolve, I, I, you know, we can't. We don't save every dog, unfortunately. But we can really do a big number and, and really make a big difference to the environment in which the dogs live in. Mm. Thank you so much for joining us on this incredible journey today. We've covered some fascinating insights and had the opportunity to dive deep into our topic. But wait, there's more. We're splitting this episode into two parts because there is still so much to explore. We want to give you some time to reflect on everything we've discussed so far. So we'll be taking a brief pause here. But don't worry, part two is just around the corner. Make sure to mark your calendars and join us again next week as we continue this captivating conversation. In the meantime, if you have any questions or thoughts you'd like to share, feel free to reach out to us on our social media using the hashtag pause and effect podcast. And if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe or follow our podcast so you don't miss out on the continuation of this exciting discussion. Stay tuned for part two coming your way next week.